I invite your attention to the book of Jude, the 25th verse and the 24th verse, Jude 24 and 25, as we'd like to talk to you this morning uh, somewhat about a word in this passage. I don't know if we're going to really stay in this passage as I have more of a subject on my mind, and that is the word glory. What is it? What is glory? How is it that we ascribe God glory? How do the scriptures teach uh, the subject of glory? Now, uh, let's just read verse 24 and 25, and I'm going to try to stick to my game plan. You know, I've got a game plan. I've got an outline. I want to stick with it, just like any good teacher. Am I right about that? You want to announce your outline? I want to talk about how God uh, in the Bible sets forth or declares the glory of God. I want to talk about the manifestation of that glory. And I want to talk about where on earth that we find this glory. I want to show you from the scriptures what we have in mind here. But listen, let's look at verse 24, 25 of Jude. This is right before the book of Revelation. Now unto him, notice the phrase, now unto him. He's coming to the conclusion of this great letter. We've already made mention of the previous uh, weeks ago that we, uh, in terms of Jude and who he was. And now he comes to the end of this great epistle. And uh, we're not going to really look into the substance of it. You know, we've looked at the beginning. Now we're looking at the end. And what's sandwiched between the two, we're not even going to address this morning, although I would like to. But maybe we can do that in the future. But I want to show you here, as like a, maybe a springboard, if you, mind, if you don't mind, uh, what, what we're talking about when we refer to the glory of God. He said, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory. There's the word. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. The scripture says that the, uh, the Lord's people should bless the name, the glorious name of our God. Worship. Worship. All this really basically in our mind, helps us understand what worship is because we literally glorify God. Worship is a translative verb. In other words, it has an object. The verb worship has an object. Not all verbs have objects. If I say this morning, um, smiling, I'm smiling, that verb smiling doesn't have an object. It stands alone. And it's a very sad thing in our day and age that people tend to Worship alone. They have no object like the great God of the universe who alone is wise, who is our Savior. To Him be glory. You see the object in mind? Our worship has a central focus. It's like the needle on a compass. It directs itself toward God. Now, I know a lot of people are floating and wandering around in a non-biblical sense and in in. in uh, unintelligible biblical sense today. Uh, we kind of float, tossed about by many winds of doctrines, and we're not rooted and grounded in the faith. We have an idea of what we think worship is. We have an idea of what God is. Uh, we don't really have any scripture for it, but it behooves us as members of the church, as Christians, as those who believe in God, to understand that we worship according to the knowledge, the understanding of the Bible, the information that He has given us. We are bound to it. We are bound to it. And this is, this is critical in under, understanding. We have no right to just wander off the plantation, if you will. We have no right to come up with some idea outside the Scriptures. The Lord Himself gave us the template. He did that which was according to the Scriptures. And so it is important that we use this as a guideline this morning to know what glory is, what it truly is. Now, the word that I want to present for you in the first place is this idea 
of declaring the name of God. And so when we think about glory, how do we give God glory? We simply want to express something. We want to say that he is worthy. In fact, that word worship, it comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Those two phrases. Because God is worthy to be praised. And he is certainly um, all that he is. All that he ever was. All that the Bible presents him to be. He is worthy of your praise. He's worthy of every aspect of your life. We were reminded this week about how that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto him. Don't bring your pitiful offerings unto God Almighty who is worthy to be praised. You know, and that's what we do. We cut and dice our lives up in such a way that he gets the leftovers. When he demands our whole heart, we're no longer a serving God from Mount Sinai. We serve God from the position of sovereign grace, which means he, he deserves every bit of who we are. It's very demanding. This Christian life is very demanding. We just can't skirt the Christian life. We can't hide. Now, you can in some places. I know you can. And because uh, I've been there, I've hid under the bushel, so to speak. The light dampened under the works of man. But listen, after a while, that Spirit of God will take you and pull you in directions you would not go because He is demanding of His own glory for His name's sake. So it's a declaration. We are expressing this morning the truth of the Scriptures. Uh, the glory of God. In Psalms 19, for the first text this morning, is a scripture that denotes how creation itself expresses or declares the glory of God. Psalms chapter 19. The heavens, the scripture says, declares the glory of God. Well, how is that? Every day when you go to work, you look up and you see the bright sun beaming down uh, upon you. You feel the heat The warmth of the sun. That great light by day. The masterful work of the creation of God. In heaven you can see in the book of Revelation when all are gathered around the throne and they're worshiping God. You have the 24 elders representative of the 12 uh, uh, um, um, uh, sons of Jacob in the Old Testament. The 12 tribes. And you have the 12 apostles all representing as they cast their throne before uh, excuse me, cast their crown before the throne and they worship God. And what do they say? There's the angelic host, holy, 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 God Almighty. But then you, you hear the words, for thou hast created all things. And so we see that the creation itself magnifies and expresses, it speaks volumes that there's a God who upholds all things by the word of his power. He has set these timepieces in the heavens and they remain there as long as he so wills because he's sovereign creator of the universe. Psalms chapter 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, the firmament, showeth, notice, showeth, manifest his handiwork. Isn't it a beautiful thing to convey to you this morning, these beautiful things that are way beyond, way beyond our understanding. Uh, It wasn't long ago that prior to the Hubble Space Telescope, there was an idea that creation itself and everything you see is static, that it has stayed the same since its very beginning. But the Hubble has peered deep into the universe and has seen things that uh, before... Uh, never before imagined, and revealing, manifesting this fact that it's not a static type of situation, but an expanding one. And uh, the the, the universe is moving from one point to another as it it expands into the universe uh, in whatever way they define it. But the point is that they notice from this expansion that there was a beginning There was a beginning. And we read back in the earlier chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, we find out that uh, God created the heaven 
and the earth. It's no surprise to us, is it? It's not something that we just learned and we, didn't, we don't need a telescope. We've got God's word to define for us that the, cre- the creation itself uh, declares the, cr- the glory of the creator God who said, let there be light. Before there was a sun, before there was a, a, any lesser lights in the sky, before the fourth day, there was the first day. And on the first day, he said, let there be light. It was a reflection of his own self. He is light. And he manifested that light in a world that was made, that was void, without form. You know, before God clothed it, if you will, with humanity, clothed it before, with, uh, before he clothed it with animals and, and, and vegetation, uh, there was just an earth a without form and void. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so we can see how beautiful the heavens declare the glory of God. The sun declares the glory of God, doesn't it? We can't, we shy away from it. It's so bright, the intensity of it. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? 93, you know you're looking at 93 million miles away. You didn't know that you could see that far, did you? 93 million miles away. They say that the next sun, or the next planet, is... 300,000 times the distance to the sun. And isn't that amazing that this next planet, what's it called? Does anybody know? Alpha Centauri, something like that. Not, it's 300,000 times further than the 93 million miles that the sun is away from the earth. How majestic is deep space, how powerful it is. You cannot measure it. In Jeremiah chapter 31, I believe, he presents this scenario. If you could measure, if you could measure not only the depths of the sea, but if you could measure space itself, then he would cease. His covenant would cease. And the obvious implication of that is you cannot measure space. And it's profound. It's profound. How profound is the glory of God in creation? Well, in the book of Numbers, there's another aspect to this thing called the glory of God. And when we refer to the name of God, and that is this. Not only does creation express the glory of God, but the name of God expresses glory. The name of God. And it's really uh, limited for us to stand up here and try to describe the name of God. God has no name. God is. He's a spirit. But he gives us names in order for us, human beings, to find some sort of connectivity to him. He gives us a multiple amount of names. But these names uh, contribute toward his attributes and help us to understand him. In Numbers chapter 14, within this context, we find that the children of Israel have just sent out spies into the land of Canaan. And he sent 12 out, but 10 came back with an evil report. What did that mean? Well, they came back unbelieving. There's giants in the land. We can't do this. They're too powerful. We're not able to overcome the giants of the land. But, of course, you remember there was two, Joshua and Caleb. It was said of Caleb that he had the spirit with him. And this was a man of God who had faith. Now, it's odd that we're just two weeks beyond the Red Sea experience. And between the Red Sea, and, Red sea experience and Kadesh Barnea, there, there was a lot going on in terms of God's miraculous blessings. There was water from a rock. There was the bitter waters of Mara made sweet. I mean, there was a lot going on. God was literally taking care of his people by his own outstretched hand. I mean, they could see things that we can only imagine, like the Red Sea standing up walking across on dry land and then watching the host of the Egyptians' uh, fleet of horses uh, drowned, Pharaoh's host drowned as the waters rescinded back. And so they could visually see the power and the demonstration of Almighty God. And yet, they failed to believe that He could take care of the giants you know, in the land, what they deemed as giants. And so Moses went to bat 
for the bittering, murmuring people of God. You see, God was angry. God was angry at their unbelief. And Moses said unto the Lord, the Egyptians, now they're going to hear, if you just destroy your people right now, for their unbelief, for their murmuring, for their complaining, if you do that, why the Egyptians are going to hear about it. What was he doing? He was basically appealing to God's name among the Gentiles. Your name would be reproached upon, basically. You brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among the people, and thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by day uh, in a pillar of cloud, and by fire at night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard of the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. I beseech thee that the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken. And so, and now he speaks about the name of God. The Lord is long-suffering. He's great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee. And so he's appealing to the name of God by which they knew him to be a loving God, a merciful God, a forgiving God, a compassionate God, a long-suffering God, a God that swore that he would bring his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Don't let that name be reproached upon, upon the inhabitants of the world. Let your name stand. Let it be glorified. And of course... It was Moses who was interceding on their behalf. And Moses was a representative of the Lord Jesus himself, that go-between, the mediator between God and man. God didn't deal with the, with, with the people. He didn't, deal, he didn't deal with the people of Israel. They stood afar off on the mountain. They could not touch the mountain lest they would die. You see back there? It was an image or a figure of what was to come. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Moses being the mediator between God and men. The Lord said this. I have pardoned according to thy word. Just like that. No problems. Because in Moses. God the Father sees his mercy and truth together. Meeting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mercy and truth meet together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well there's another episode. And of course if we can say this much right here. That declaring the name of God is declaring who he is. Who he is. We don't do this blindsided. Somebody might ask Sister Susan, what do you do over there at Mount Carmel? We glorify the name of God. Well, which one? The, long, the, <laughs> the merciful God. The God who's long-suffering and compassionate. The one who forgives all our iniquities in Christ. The one who in Christ shed Blood on our behalf. That's the one. We glorify Him. That's why He can reach down to a broken-hearted vessel made of earthen clay and inspire you by His Spirit. But, now I'm going to choose this for the sake of memory. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 14. We were in Numbers. Look at Jeremiah 14. Here's another episode where a prophet, now you know Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, and there's probably good reason. You know, I thank the Lord that I'm a minister of the New Testament. Isaiah had to walk around the city three years naked. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. At one point he was told to wear a girdle or an undergarment on the outside for everybody to see, but only after it was laid in the mud for some time. It was a picture of the, the drought that was experienced between God and the people that he made a covenant with. They refused, well, many, many hundreds of years later from, new, from the book of Numbers. We're way beyond that. And between that time and further, you have nothing more than rebellion. 
God's people back in the Old Testament were very rebellious. And in the 14th chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is going to go to bat just like Moses did in Numbers 14. And he goes to the Lord and he cries. He said, O Lord, verse 7, Though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. And so Jeremiah has taken a page out of Moses' book and says, you know, for thy name's sake, forgive these people. But what happens? And he goes through all this. He said, in verse 9, why shouldest thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. And so, you know, Jeremiah is concerned. He's heard the prophecies. He received it. He's heard the voice of the Lord. And it's a frightening thing about what is to take place in just a short time. And here's God's answer. See, here's his answer. He said, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people, for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them. I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by pestilence. You see, God rejected the same plea, the same argument. Let your name be great. God says, no, I will not. And I'll tell you what I get out of this. That the name of God is glorified by His attributes of love and mercy and kindness and long-suffering. But God's name is also glorified in the punishment of sin. He will in no wise clear the guilty. He shows us here that God will punish sin. That God will chasten sin. That God will, because of His nature, He's holy, will not at all clear the guilty. That's what's being presented here. God will consume His people. He will have a people that calls upon His name. He will be sanctified in them. He will be purified in their hearts. He will have a people that blesses His holy name. Even if it means dragging those people through captivity, through chastening, in order to bring them low and to humble His people. Now, in the book of the New Testament, One of the greatest areas where we can visualize this great and grand glory of God is in the Lord Jesus. Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the most remarkable chapters in all the Bible, we find the Lord Jesus Christ declaring the name of God. In the 17th chapter of John, we we have a prayer that is recorded. Now, you, you can read through the Gospels. Where Jesus is often praying. He teaches his disciples how to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. See, right out at the start, he's teaching us how to glorify the name of God. Declaring the name of God. Expressing the name, the attributes of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ, we've never heard of a prayer like the one we've heard or hear of in John chapter 17. Now, you may have heard him pray by reading the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. There's a prayer that is uttered when he's there. But the prayer in John 17 is powerful in that it expounds unto God the idea of declaring the name of God, the glory that is due his name. And if you were to break up this particular chapter, you would find it in three major divisions. In the first division, the Lord Jesus Christ is glorifying himself with the Father. He says, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. Isn't that beautiful? Even from before the foundation of the world, God was glorified in this relationship between the Father and the Son and, of course, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Now, you try to get your arms around that one. You and I, we need apparatus. We need machinery. We need gadgets, gizmos. We certainly do. You see, the worship of God, as I said, is... It has, a, it has an object, and it's God. It's not self. 
That's self-oriented. In other words, the worship, the true worship of God, glorifies the Creator, and it's a vertical plane because we set our affection on Christ who is above. You see? Well, what happens when we have a man-centrist type of worship? We exclude God, and it's no longer setting our affection on things which are above, but it's setting our affections, plural, on things which are below. And they're split up in many different ways. We don't glorify the Father, and we don't glorify the Son, but we glorify ourselves. We are self-centered, and we... It's our issues, it's our needs, it's my wants, it's my talent. All that is very highlighted in our day and age in which we live. Christianity has removed, has removed God from the worship service. But here's the Lord, He said, I, I'm about to glorify you as I go to the cross. Notice what He says. He says, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so... Jesus is glorifying the Father in terms of His redemptive work. And isn't that the case in which we just read? They were brought through the Red Sea. Isn't that the source of glorifying the Lord in the Old Testament? Remembering His redemptive work and bringing us out of the bondage of Egypt and setting us free and delivering us from so great a death and giving us a land that didn't belong to us. A land giving us a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so the first five verses of the 17th chapter of John reflect this relationship that the, that the Father has with the Son. The Son in whom He is well pleased. And then, of course, the second major division in the 17th chapter, all in this beautiful prayer, is a prayer of a relationship that reflects His apostles, those that were close to Him. With the exception of one. It reflects the love that he had for them. He said, I've declared my name unto them which thou gavest me. I'm going to send them out into the world. I'm going to pray for them. Not for the world, but for them which thou gavest me. And then, toward the further end of the chapter, from verses 20 to 26, he says... Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In other words, he's talking about you and I today. He's talking about all the elect family of God. From that point until whenever, all the elect family of God, he is praying for them. That the glory which was given to the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be one, that they may have that glory, that they may may be one and He in us, that they may know that Thou hast sent me. Father, I will that they also, verse 24, whom Thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. I know it's a difficult term to understand, but it's as simple as understanding the person And the work of Christ to extol and to exalt the work of God, what he's done on our behalf. Because we sing, do we not? Did we sing this morning? And I was reminded this morning, you know, even if you're uncomfortable about your own singing voice, do you know you may as well get used to it? Because we're going to be singing throughout all eternity. Now, granted, we'll probably be a whole lot better doing it in eternity. But now is a great time to get started. We will be glorifying and basking in the light of the glory of the Son of God forever and ever. And so I think in the first place, as I keep to my outline, notice verse 26. I have declared. And so that idea is this. When we think about the glory of God, it is that which is declaring His name. Not only in creation, not only in the attributes that reflect the name of God, not only in his people as we expound on the redemption that he has set us free, but also in this idea that uh, we are understanding the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. That doesn't take a scientist to figure out. That's pretty easy. I mean, as hard and difficult as it is to wrap our understanding around the idea of what glory is, 
It's pretty self-explained right here, self-explanatory in the Bible. He covers all the bases. Well, there's something else that's conveyed in this idea of glory, especially in the Old Testament. Now, we started off in Jude. There's references to it in, in Peter's epistle. And it's very interesting that the writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament quite a bit to convey certain things, to illustrate. In fact, one of the greatest chapters in Christian liberty, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says in verse 31, whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, he says, do all to the glory of God. In that chapter, there's more Old Testament analogies than any, almost anywhere else. And so, I don't take the argument that the Gentiles in that day were oblivious to what was going on when it came to the history of the Jews. I believe the Jewish brethren alone were informed in such a way that they taught and explained what went on among the Jews. The nations. That's what the argument was that Moses used. Don't give up on the nations. Don't give up on the nations. The nations need to know about your glory and about your honor. And they did so through the Hebrews. And so I don't buy a lot of the arguments that we read about today. And so I'm going to go back and do the same thing. I'm going to look back a little bit at some Old Testament history to convey to you this New Testament idea of which we read about out of the book of Jude. That we're to glorify God both now and ever. That now, excuse me, has the idea of not only what is present, but what is past. The idea of ever has that which denotes something future, something that is yet to take place. But if we look at that word now, we can see that God's glory was conveyed in the past. How was it conveyed in the past? In Exodus chapter 25, I want to read you a verse here. Exodus 25. This is the second book of the Bible, Brother Stephen. And as we turn to Exodus 25... We got this idea in verse 8 that is very profound. He said, let them make me a sanctuary. Now we're talking about the God of the universe. He's about as big as that space. Infinite. His ways are what? Past finding out. We can't draw God on a piece of paper. He's too big. But he's trying to convey something to us by way of a figure. He said, I want you to make me a house that I can dwell in. It's going to be called a sanctuary. Now from the outside, it's going to be pretty ugly looking. Badger skins. You know what that kind of skin looks like after you know, two or three years? It doesn't look good at all. But inside, you're going to take this old archaic wood and you're going to overlay it with gold. Amen. It's beautiful. Beautiful. But not an eye could see it except those so chosen of the Levites to enter in to the innermost sanctuary because that's where God would meet with His people through the, represent, through the, represent, represent, through the representatives of the people, the high priest. He said, make me a sanctuary. Now notice what he says, that I may dwell among them. God's going to dwell among His people. Now that word dwell is a word, a Hebrew word, a root word, whereby we get the word Shekinah. Now that word Shekinah is not in the English, but it conveys to us the idea of God's glory dwelling with His people. And so we get the idea uh, from Bible teachers that the Shekinah is God's glory. And it's represented in two ways. It's represented not only what we just talked about in terms of the name of God, expressing both his attributes of forgiveness, but also his attribute of holiness and justice. But in this case, there's also an aspect of this twofold application of God's glory when we think about this Shekinah, because two things happened. It was a cloud and there was a fire. The fire is what enabled them to see, even in the darkest of night, in the wilderness. But also the cloud was this powerful separation, if you will, that divided the scorching heat of the sun and protected them in the daytime. Now, in the New Testament, we get this idea from the Apostle Paul, which brings us into this idea of cloud. Because when you look at a cloud, you think... 
You know, what's to it? Did you ever see a cloud, you know, on a day, maybe go up high? Some of you, I'm sure, have been to Pikes Peak and you've went through a cloud. There's nothing to it. There's no substance at all. But that's not describing the Shekinah glory. Paul uses the phrase, the eternal weight. The eternal weight of glory. And I'll tell you what, that cloud in the Old Testament that descended from heaven, that God was in, either at Mount Sinai or here at the sanctuary, was a weighty substance. It was powerful influence. And I'll tell you what, wherever God is made known, He is a powerful influence. He can take a sinner, vain and wild, destitute of happiness and joy and peace, under the piercing, piercing point pricks of a thrice holy God, crying out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he can find peace through the blood of the cross. That's power. That's power. That's more power than a preacher can give. That's more power than a word, a written word. That's the power of the Spirit of God in the heart of a child of grace. Letting him know that he's now a friend with the Lord. That he's no longer answerable to those sins. That God has cleansed you from that sin. That's power. That's the presence of God. And also, the idea of light. There was a fire. A fire. The brightness of the light of God. So, wherever we find the presence of God, we have light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, whenever God is in the, in the mix, you have the light of God, light of knowledge, the light of his presence. What's interesting in the book of Exodus, in, a few, in, in several chapters later, Moses was interested in seeing the way of God. He said in verse 13, what do he say? Show me now thy way, verse 13, Exodus chapter 33, that I may know thee. Now, it's interesting because Moses, he had a personal relationship with God. God spoke to him as a man. He was there on Mount Horeb in the burning bush. But now Moses wants to see God face to face. Show me, he says, thy face. Show me, he says that. Uh, Notice. Well, I got verse 13, verse, verse 11, here it is. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. Now, that's phraseology in the Old Testament that's conveying, you know, the fact that God had a personal relationship with Moses. He spoke to him face to face. Now, not literally, because why? God is a spirit. God doesn't have hands, he doesn't have feet, doesn't have eyes, right? But the Bible portrays him as such because it's conveying something to us limited little creatures that God comes to our abode and we can speak to him face to face. We can know him as any other man, if if you will, if you will. In the person of Christ, he comes to you. He said, fear not, behold. See, the glory of God in the highest. What does he say? Fear not. When God came on the scene, He said, Fear not. Why? Because Christ has made God the Father acceptable to a sinner. Right? He received the sinners. There's no way a man could look upon the face of God and live. God is holy. Holy, holy. Three times. That's an exclamation. The only time in the Bible that you hear it three times is about holy, holy, holy. Now watch this. He says in verse 18, show me thy glory. And so it's the same thing. He's conveying different language. Show me thy way. Show me thy glory. Look at verse 14. Here's another way of saying it. Show me, he said, my presence. God says, my presence shall go with thee. So when we think about the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, we're thinking about the very presence of God. That's what it's about. Now, of course... Moses couldn't see God. And so God provided something for him. He said, now, I'm not going to let you see my face, Moses, but I'll let you see my hinder parts. Now, again, the image is that he's not going to see God in his full frontage, you know, apparent, expressed power, 
and brightness. You cannot fathom that. But I'm going to let you see a portion of me when I pass by. I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you over here in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to hide you from that powerful presence of the Almighty. And so here he said in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim, here it is, the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I've said this before. That here's the greatest aspect that Moses has experiencing here in, in seeing the face of God. And it's done so in the terms of distinguishing sovereign grace. That he withholds from some and gives to others. God is known by his glory of of distinguishing sovereign grace. And so the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock. And of course, that's a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the manifestation of God's glory is to feel the presence of him. That's why we go to church. We go to church that we might feel, in a sense, in a spiritual way, the presence of Almighty God through the truth and the proclamation of the Word of God, which is blessed through the Spirit, that we would feel the very presence of God. The weight of God would be known. The cloud and the light of God's glory. Well, let's ask the question, who is it? that best defines the glory of God. If there was something here that we could mention this morning that best defines that presence in our lives, who would it be? And I invite your attention to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and a very famous verse, verse 14. He is speaking about in this epilogue of John's gospel, the Word, the eternal Word of God who was with God, who was God, And who by him created all things. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Again, reiterating this principle that the glory of God is always surrounding this great creation of God. The sun and the moon and the stars. But watch who it is that defines, that expresses, that best shows forth the glory of God. The word was made flesh. Verse 14. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he dwelt among us. And now in brackets, this is what John says. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He makes the distinguishing aspect that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now John obviously is remembering something. And early on in his experience, he will remember going up the mount, going up into a high mountain. Note the distinction, a high mountain. And there he will meet with God. How does he do it? How does God meet with Peter, James, and his brother John? He unveils his humanity. And all of a sudden, the brightness... Of his expressed image. The brightness of the glory of God. Is shown forth. Matthew chapter 17. Beautiful text. And he was transferred. Transfigured verse 2. Before them. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as light. And behold. Now watch what we have in this text. We have the Shekinah glory. We have the cloud and we have the light. His face shone as the light, as the sun. His raiment white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. This is a little bit about what Jude mentions about the exceeding joy In the presence of God Almighty. In the glory of God. He says. Oh it's good for us to be here. 
I don't think Peter ever felt any better. You know, there's been times when I have been on the mountaintops in the assembly of God, listening to the preacher preach the unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was powerful to me. Let me ask a question. What did you do this morning to prepare yourself for Mount Zion? To come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable host of angels. What have you done to prepare your heart before you've presented yourself a living sacrifice? Did you pray ere you left your room this morning? One of Brother Stephen's favorite hymns. Notice this. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, the voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Isn't it a sad thing today that we've excluded Jesus Christ the Lord from our worship service? We've got a Jesus, but it's another Jesus. It's not Jesus Christ the Lord. That magnificent express image of the Godhead bodily. We have something else in place of it, but we don't have Him. Notice the words of Hebrews chapter 1. I'll go here because it's so applicable to what we've been saying. How has God spoken to us in these last days? I love beauty. I love beauty and I love beautiful architecture. And a lot of people make the point that, which is exemplified mainly in the Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic churches, is the beauty of architecture. And I will say amen to the beauty of architecture. You can go into the National Cathedral down there in D.C. and you can see some beautiful works. And some use that as a reason to suggest that it's okay to have ornaments. like our Protestant brothers and sisters. They are beautiful, but here's what I like to convey. That the beauty of the New Testament worship service surrounds its objective, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now I know, I think we should have the best modern buildings money can buy. I believe we shouldn't be meeting in places that are diminished by decay. I believe, like Sister Caroline, that we should have a beautiful stainless steel kitchen table down there. Right, Sister Caroline? That we shouldn't hold back in the elements that surround our the functionality of the church. We shouldn't be sitting on hard pews and using candles at night and stuffing the old wood burner with wood. We should have the, the accommodations that we all have at our home. The comforts of modernity. But in terms of the beauty, it should be the Lord. He is our place, a glorious place. The Lord Jesus Christ. We honor Him. We extol His name and glorify Him. And that's why we have no images today that reflect something maybe as precious as they might have been because the argument is, well, they had Him in the Old Testament. They didn't have images of God, of course, which was contrary to the law of Moses. I agree. But they had wood and things made of wood back in the Old Testament tabernacle. But that was a figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was never meant to be carried over into. If there's any substantive elements to the New Testament worship service, let it be bread, unleavened bread. Let it be wine from the vineyard. Good wine, not watered down grape juice. Let it be wine that reflects the powerful intensity of Emmanuel's veins, cleansing sinners from their stains. So let it be the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us honor Him. The express who is the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. There again. The creation. Always remember that. There's nothing wrong with taking your children out into the landscape and looking high into the sky and saying, see that? There's the glory of God on display. Now let me show you something else. 
Let me show you the express image of all that. Declaring unto you the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and you can see the glory of his grace. The majesty of his grace. He says it over and over again. That God's glory is summed up in the wonderful work. The redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how is it on display today? How is the glory of God on display today? Jesus is no longer with us. He said to his disciples, he said, I'm going to leave you. He's no longer in an earthly capacity. Where is the God's glory? Where? That's a good point. Now, I want to go back just for a second to this, this text in Numbers 14. Because in that text, he alludes to something that is yet future from their, their perspective. That is so profound. So profound. Now, what is, watch, watch what he says. he says. He says, as I live. Truly, he said, as I live. This is God speaking. This is God speaking in the light of unbelief. Now, you want to know how is it that God's glorified today? Listen to what he says. He says, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. You know, how is that done today? And I'm going to tell you how it's done. You know, we sing about, oh, victory in Jesus. We sung the song today about mansions and glory. Listen, they got that wrong. That third stanza is wrong. It's not right. I love it. I sing it anyway. But when I read mansions, I think of God's dwelling places right now. The way he does it. How is it that God's glorified all over the world? He does it through the new birth. Because in the new birth, he makes his dwelling place with us, with his people, you see. And so the world over, it is filled in the hearts of God's people with the glory of God Almighty, magnifying His name, wherever they may be, praising His name, applauding His name, glorifying the name of God, exonerating the name of Christ. That's what it is. That's what He's doing. That's how He's doing it. Now, silly, silly man comes along and says, I need apparatus. And so we're going to have this stuff back out of the Old Testament once again. And we're going to build a temple And we're going to fill the earth with God's glory in a physical realm. They're forgetting something. They're forgetting what the Bible says, are they not? That God has made his dwelling place with people. That he dwells with them. I in them and they in me. We are uh, built upon Christ. And we have a relationship with the Lord. That's what John 17 is all about. Is that relationship, you see. But notice with me, if you need a text, I'm going to give you one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where do we find the glory of God today? Where do we find the glory of God? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. These are scriptures you can mark down, memorize. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Remember this, that whenever there's life, it comes through the commandment spoken to a dead sinner by the voice of of the Lord God Himself. The commandment. It's the commandment is life. He speaks life. The flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh serves no purpose when it comes to life. The principle of life is in us. The Spirit of God. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Has shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I like that word knowledge. Because it reiterates the important point I made earlier. And that is we worship God according to knowledge that he's given us. That we have no, uh, that we have no authority outside the Bible to form uh, God after the dictates of our own mind. That's what they did once. The Bible says they changed the glory of God and they likened it unto man or the beast of the field. That scripture, Romans chapter 1, goes all the way back to the book of Psalms. Because it reflects what they did back there. They chiseled something out of a piece of wood. And they called it God. It wasn't long after they were given the first set of tablets, the commandments of God at Mount Sinai. When Aaron did what the people wanted him to do. Isn't that a terrible figure of a minister of God? I'll tell you, the minister of God, the minister of God, he, doesn't, he preaches to an audience of one. Aaron 
let God down. Give me your earrings of gold and I'll make you a molten calf. And they worship that calf. And they called that calf Yahweh. That was not Yahweh. That was not Jehovah. But that's what they made him to be. Now listen, God is honored today, even amidst the infirmities of the flesh, the weaknesses of the false doctrine, the weaknesses of unbelief. Because the unbelief, the unbelief does not nullify the faith of God. This is a great teaching in Romans chapter 4. All the sickness and the rebellion of the children of Israel, according to the flesh, that failed to keep the, the covenant that was given to them, that they received through Moses at Mount Sinai, will not, will not destroy Eliminate, diffuse, nullify, make void the promise that God himself gave to his son in eternity that he will have a people and that he will dwell with them and they shall be his by right. You see, and we are the dwelling place of God Almighty. And that's how God fills the earth with his glory. And what are we doing now then? Paul says this. He says, unto the he says, unto him be glory in the church through Jesus Christ throughout all ages. Isn't that beautiful? That the church is the depository, if you will, the coming together of corporate public worship where we glorify God Almighty. But let me close with this point, and I'll go back to Jude. Because it's got a futuristic aspect to this glory. I'm glad it's not all now. You know, we, we, there's something we've received. We've received a portion or an inheritance or a deposit of something yet to come. I mean, we have the Spirit. We have joy. We have peace. We have forgiveness. We have all those precious elements of the attributes of God. But we have it in part. In the sense of our receiving it, in our sense of knowing it, in the sense of the joy of it, we have it in part. Now watch what he says. He says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before who? Before the presence of his glory. With what? With exceeding joy. It is good, Peter said, for us to be here. Now I want you to think, that the glory that the Father and the Son had before the apparatus ever existed was so fulfilling and rewarding. There was no need. God doesn't need this earth to accommodate Him. He doesn't need things like you and I do. He has Himself. That's what our future is. Paul said, when Christ appears, when He shall appear... In glory, we also shall appear with Him in glory. That is an amazing feature of the New Testament. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places, many abodes. And these are the precious children of God. Not only now, but also ever. To the only wise God, our Savior... Be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. We're blushing. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.